0: I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating
1: founders share their stories with us before they've made it.
0: Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And
1: now we're sharing these stories with you.
0: This is Unfinished Biz. You've got to be clear
2: about who's doing what, and when that clarity... When it gets foggy, that's when it gets, that's
0: when it gets sideways. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, former CEO of Cliff Bar, Kevin Cleary, takes us through his entrepreneurial journey, which is impressive to say the least. Kevin loves the art of businesses, building them, growing them helping them thrive, but as we'll learn, a company as successful as Cliff had some major scaling challenges along the way, and Kevin had to navigate his way through it all. All of a sudden you got 550 people, or 600 people doing this stuff, and it's
2: like, what's the process? Like how, I don't even know this person up here anymore.
1: Find out how Kevin overcame those growth hurdles when letting go is sometimes the only way to get things done and why his management style brought Cliff so much success. Unfinished Biz starts now. Robin, this one's a little different than our other Unfinished Biz episodes in that those stories have been a little earlier in its company's trajectory, whereas Kevin's story is much more full circle.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, Cliff's one of the biggest CPG success stories to date, and they went from just a handful of employees to thousands. And through that time, Kevin said to adjust his role just to kind of accommodate all that. That's
1: right. And as you'll hear, Kevin's had a really strong grasp on culture and kindness while figuring out how to balance that with profitability and making money. Mm-hmm. And we heard a lot more about that story when he joined us at our VMG offices in San Francisco.
2: You know, I, I think probably with a lot of people, my entrepreneurial journey began at a very young age. I mean, mm-hmm. I was the guy in the neighborhood who was... Constantly um, setting up uh, little stands selling lemonade or, or setting up games and doing things for parents to come and watch and play and pay for different events we were doing as kids. So it started at a very young age, but I kind of lost that journey as I, as I went through school, came out of school at, at uh, Cal Berkeley and started with um down the path at Quaker Oats mm-hmm. you know yep. and and I was there for 11 years it was a fantastic experience Went in it chicago was, it was it was actually in the bay area okay. here from mm-hmm. about half of it and then yeah. about half of it in uh, in chicago mm-hmm. so i did that and then i left that uh, and went to rr donnelly another 50,000 5 billion dollar company and You know, they were great experiences, gave me a lot of foundation of good, solid business sense and Mm -hmm. how to how to run a company and how to run a business or how to run a project. But it wasn't really scratching the itch of the entrepreneurial itch that I that I had. So in 2004, I had the opportunity to come out and join Cliff Bar, Mm -hmm. which was this fantastic, you know, still pretty young company. But really entrepreneurial, and gave me a chance to really um, exercise those muscles during that during that time period. But the thing I'll say also is that you know entrepreneurial spirit doesn't it can exist, and it did exist in what I was doing yeah. at Quaker Oats and R Donnelly. It was mm-hmm. really a mindset for how you approached issues and how you approached challenges. Like mm-hmm. were, you, were you constantly in the box for how to figure stuff out, or were you able to really look at things in a new and unique manner? And an approach, whether it was on a project at, at a $5 billion company or a project at a, at a smaller company.
1: So. Do you find that with that mentality that inevitably you think a, a professional would end up leaving an organization that doesn't fully align with that that state of mind? Or do you think that that's a, that, that state of mind can, can exist in an organization that's different over, a long, over the long haul?
2: I think at some point, depending on how strong that draw is of that entrepreneurial spirit, I think at some point in time, you're going to just go do some, you know, you're going to be driven and follow your path to some other company.
1: So how did it start at Cliff? What, what was your role there? And what, what, was, what, what
0: was, yeah, paint us a picture. Of yeah, like,
2: show us, I mean, people think of the Cliff of today. What was Cliff like then? Right. So, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I had, I was familiar with the products because I was doing triathlons and and marathons. And when I, when I came out to Cliff to interview, my thought was just that there's no way this small, I don't know, 80, 90 person company at the time, maybe a hundred people is going to be, you know, it's going to really be what I want to do next because I'm coming from these massive companies. But mm-hmm. I came out and interviewed, met Gary, met Cheryl, who was the CEO at the time, or I knew Cheryl, but saw her, um, at the Gary's same time. Gary's one of the co founder Cheryl. Yeah. Gary Laughlin. Erickson is, yeah, yeah, with the founder. And then, um, Cheryl Lachlan was becoming CEO at that time, mm-hmm. met with them and just fell in love with the company. Learned more about what the company was about you know, about five aspirations, sustaining our business, our brands, our people, our community, our planet. And that was a really cool thing. And I was like, I want to be a part of something, be a part of a company that's not just making great products that people love, but also that's trying to do right in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that was a real draw for me. And it was funny because I love leading. Like that's the thing that I, that I love to do. But I was feeling an emptiness in these bigger companies because of that, that draw of, am I giving back through my work, mm-hmm. am I giving back to the to the community, or am I giving back to the planet? And this was a real coming together of of that connection for me that just made a ton of sense, and um, and I loved it. So the company was, um, you know, we were we were uh, pretty small. I mean, it was like I said, about ninety to hundred people. Mm-hmm. It was, um, you know, we had just started these aspirations a couple of years before. You know, the, how we thought about our business right. and running it. Yep. Um, but we hadn't really pulled them together in a way to operate. Because it's one thing to say we've got these things, Mm -hmm. but it's another to say how do they actually come to life every day when every employee shows up to work. So that was one of the big tasks was how do we pull that into an operating model so people can really leverage those things. And what we found through that process was the magic was that one is people really were drawn to Cliff because of these aspirations mm-hmm. and stayed there because they were able to live their lives and the things that mattered to them beyond making a paycheck, but doing things in the community doing things in the plant, for the planet doing things in the
0: in the so, business so where do those aspirations come from, and how much of a of a real sort of calculated effort was it to actually? institutionalize that.
2: Yeah, so they came from, you know, Gary in 2001 worked closely with the company when he decided not to sell the company and, and it worked with the company on saying, look, what is this company going to be about, mm-hmm. right? It's clearly not about making, you know, the one, an extra buck because I'd have sold the company if that was the case. So mm-hmm. they started from a very um, organic journey with the company on who do, you, who do you admire, which companies do you admire out there, and then pulled it together and said, hey, here are the, here's what this business is going to stand for. The, the operating so that was a huge step mm-hmm. for the company, and I think a, a real key step as you yep. look at look at the history as you come to um, the key challenge though is how are you going to pull that together because you know we started to go organic on Cliff Bar in two thousand and three mm-hmm. two thousand and two two thousand and three well that 's one step yep right, and those are big steps mm-hmm. but how do you how do you make it when somebody 's coming in that they 're thinking through whether they 're making the decision on who we 're going to buy pencils from or right. paper from. Versus what do we value from our suppliers versus, you know, whatever it is that you, the decisions you make. So when these, when these people are coming in, we tried to give them definition around, hey, think deeper than just buying, you know, an ingredient that has great high quality and is at a good price. Think about how is it making its way to our door yep. and what sort of, um, you know, uh, guidelines do they have around human resource or um, or their their processing that we feel really good about, and mm-hmm. what is it? So we were able to start to put those things in place for each one of those aspirations, which really helped people get their arms around. Wow, I understand now. Not only do I aspire to this, but I understand how I can contribute mm-hmm. to it in a day in and day out basis.
1: So when you when you joined the company, how how clear was the roles between Gary as a founder and Cheryl as a CEO at that time and Again, I think we're just trying to paint a picture of what yeah. that cliff, cliff, uh, cliff was like at that point.
2: So like I said, at that time in 2004, Gary had, um, you know, at that time Cheryl was becoming CEO. Yep. And she was, given, she was giving a lot, given a lot of rope from the perspective that I yeah. had to, mm-hmm. to run the business. And Gary had, had stepped away and said, hey, here's the vision of what I want to create. Please go execute against it. So we, um, so I came in as um, I was running supply. T- I was the executive vice president of sales um, supply chain and IT. Yep, I'm not an IT guy. I don't know how that snuck in. There. <laughs>
1: like, I don't know if I've ever met anybody with that combination: sales, supply, supply chain, and IT. IT. And IT. Yeah. Well,
2: you're not meeting one here either. I mean, <laughs> I've got sales and supply chain, yeah. IT. I was always a little, right. bit, a little bit, bewildered. But so we, um, so so I came in doing that, and you know it was ours to run. Yep. I mean, for the first couple of years, I had very few conversations with Gary about the business, and it mm-hmm. was really. Me and Cheryl and a, and a couple other leaders leading the company down the, down the path. So it was, um, you know, and I think that's an important thing when with a founder and CEO relationships. And what I dealt with as well as I, as I became president and then ultimately CEO was that you've got to be clear about who's doing what. And when that clarity, when it gets foggy, yep. that's, when it gets, that's when it gets sideways. Mm-hmm. And I think always being very disciplined about here's your job, here's my job, here's where the, here's where they potentially intersect, but here's very clearly where we each do our thing is really important.
1: And at that juncture, what what was the what was Gary what was what were the founder's roles and what was the operating team's role? Like where where did it you you mentioned definition. What was the
2: definition? Yeah, I mean you're starting to challenge my memory now there, Lane, because <laughs> we're going back fifteen yeah, that's true. years. But um but it was uh it was primarily around maintaining the vision of the organization yeah. was, was, the, was mm-hmm. the founder role, which was Gary's role, was really making sure that, is this business continuing to go in the direction that I, that I wanted it yeah. to go? And that was a really important thing. And on the operating side there was a lot of uh, freedom given in the day-to-day business on how do we build the company now in, in any, in any, I think in, you know, many, any founder based organization, there are going to be certain connection points where they want more involvement versus mm-hmm. less. And, That's right. and, you know, one of the areas there was around packaging, which they have a real gift at. And the mm-hmm. other area was around product, you know, yep. and the taste and, and that, and getting that sense of, um, of uh, what it, what it, what it tastes like, what does it look like as mm-hmm. it enters out into the market is an important thing. And that was actually important as my whole time at, at Cliff Bar because one of the advantages of having founders is that authenticity. And that's what you want to make sure that you don't lose, mm-hmm. is that that authenticity about this is what the company's about. Absolutely. And um, and that was one of the ways we were able to, to maintain Gary and have him connected to the business.
1: So from the time you joined the business, what, at what point did you take over as CEO? And- so... Yeah, and so, what were the what were some of the drivers of that?
2: Yeah, so I my journey was I was uh, became executive vice president in uh, you know as I came into nineteen in, nineteen. In uh, thank you very much. That's right. It's very very well done. <laughs> um, I became executive vice president, and then I moved um, in two thousand six to um, chief Operate, chief operating officer. Yep. So that included sales supply chain. I begrudgingly gave up IT, <laughs> but took on brand. Right, yeah. mm-hmm. so um, that was a real shift because that was a time when um, you know you had I had brand sales and supply chain, and that's where a lot of the action was actually happening on the business and in, in any business for that that's matter. Right. So then in uh, 2009, I became um, the uh, the uh, president of the organization. And yeah. that's where I had. All functions reporting, reporting in.
1: And Cheryl still there as CEO at that time.
2: Cheryl had left in two thousand and seven. Okay, yeah. So Gary and Kit, Gary and Kit, uh, Gary's wife had Mm -hmm. come back in as co CEOs in two thousand and seven. Okay, and then um, and then in two thousand nine, made me president. And that's when all the functions started Mm -hmm. to uh, report into me. And then two thousand thirteen became CEO. And you know the thing that that we had done and we talked about a lot was on that journey from becoming president to CEO, not a ton changed in my day-to-day operations at the company, but it was a, it was a nice long handoff for the organization. Cause in any company that's really, really steeped in culture, which cliff is, yep. um, which I think is one of the, 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 towering strengths of that organization is the, is the culture is that you want to make sure any move like that is done with a really smooth handoff. So, so we took some time to do that. And, um, and I think by the time I became CEO, There were people in the organization who came up to me and said, well, I already thought you were CEO. (laughs) And then there were people that had been there longer who were like understood the transition. transition, mm -hmm. But that's I think, you know, um, that's how it has to go. It has to be that nice, smooth transition in organizations that are really steeped in culture because you don't want those big shifts to happen, particularly at leadership. An outsider looking, at, was that at that point had the ESOP been formed yet, or the, the ESOP got formed at the um, the end of two thousand nine, two thousand ten.
1: Okay, and tell us a little bit more about how that, how why, and how that occurred,
0: and maybe even just for What, and, and, and well, what, what is, is it, and what is an ESOP? <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: so an ESOP is an employee stock ownership plan, which um, which is really a way for you know, there's there's a few ways for people who own a business to. Um, to take some off the table, right? Mm-hmm. Which just means, you know, take some of your investment off the table. Because a lot of times, you know, as entrepreneurs, uh, you end up with a whole, you know, a, a high net worth, but all of it's locked up in a, in a, right, in a right. business. business. So yep. how, do you, how do you pull it off? And there's different ways to do it. You can go public, you can, you know, take on private equity, you can do an ESOP. And um, so we went down the path of doing ESOP. That's what Gary had decided to do was was an employee stock ownership plan. And that was... You know the the motivation from it, which which was awesome, was, you know, we just didn't want people on their last day of the company, having given maybe twenty five years. You know, at that time, I guess we've been around for twenty years. Was all of a sudden somebody had worked with you for a long time, and and they're leaving and and they're retiring, and what they're getting from this whole journey is um you know hey well here's your unpaid vacation right. and yeah. you know so thank how, you very much thank yep. you very much uh-huh. and so it was really came from the, the heart and that was about how do you how do you um really give Give employees a vested interest in the in the performance of the company of a company that's never going to sell. That's a mm-hmm. company that you know, the, the, yeah, that's not going to sell. That's right. How do you give them that, and then that they can actually you know create wealth themselves through the performance of the company, yep. mm-hmm. and then they get when they get to retirement, maybe they're retiring a few years early, right? Or maybe they're they're moving to a place that they couldn't have afforded, right? You know, originally and. So it was, um, it was a really important component to the, to the organization.
1: How does that work? I mean, literally, does, does the company take on some debt in, in, in order to do that? And then, and then employees basically own a piece through that debt? Is that how yeah, it works? Yeah, so,
2: the, so the, bank will, the bank will buy the shares. Yeah. And then the cash flows from the company will actually purchase the shares from the bank, and then they get distributed to the employees. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. And whatever, you know, the, the benefit to an ESOP is that whatever percent you are— you know, mm-hmm. you don't pay tax on that amount,
0: mm-hmm. so yep. you're
2: able to defer that till a later time. So it, there's some really positive benefits to it, and this isn't the. Now that I'm saying this to you guys, um, wow! I'm bringing up a whole other model for these entrepreneurs. <laughs> no, I didn't mean I, to do well.
1: It. I think that's been one of the most interesting things about Cliff. Because I think if I just, I mean, I'm sure there's more, but I think of New Belgium mm-hmm. as and Cliff as the yeah. two, the two. Behemoth brands that were entrepreneurially based that have made a clear decision to be forever independent businesses and they but they still wanted the team to be incentivized yeah. and mm-hmm. then they wanted to take some chips off the table and this was their
2: way to do that. Yeah, and I think and I think from an owner standpoint, the nice thing is you are able to take it off. But mm-hmm. the, the, the important thing for people to understand is that it is at a it is at a big discount. Mm-hmm. Like if you're not getting what you would have gotten right. if you had gone sure. public, or if you had gone to private equity, or, or if, you had, or, oh, if yeah. you had sold the business. Oh, certainly, if you had sold the business and given a, given a controlling interest. So, mm-hmm. it really has to come from the heart from mm-hmm. a from a from an owner that just says, "Here's what, here's the commitment I want to make to the to the team."
1: So, paint us a picture of Cliff at, in 2013 when you took over as officially a CEO. What did it look like? Employees were you still? had you built your plant in Idaho yet or is it still being co-packed like walk us through what cliff looked like
2: yeah so 2012 2013 were 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 uh big years so we had we had gone on a, um in 2012 we'd done this transition with uh with a bakery we were with a bakery in um southern California and then we had closed that down and started up another bakery in um in the Midwest third party or company owned it was third party okay third party yeah so we had gone down that path to to make that happen and and you know, my bad. I was president of the company, but my decision at the time i, I turned off one baker. Yeah. I mean, literally, February twenty eighth, turned off one baker, turned on the other, March first. Guess <laughs> what happened?
1: After your it thoughtful, went, after your thoughtful transition plan, everything like, went smoothly. You, at the top of stores, a transition, no, no transition on this.
2: No tra- You know, and there were there were reasons for it. <laughs> yeah. There's reasons again. You know, yeah. I, I could sure. make I could make a case, but I'm just going to own it and just yeah. say, look. My bad. Like, we just turned one off, turned one on. It was yeah. my decision. And guess what 2012 looked like? It wasn't good, <laughs> right? Because we just couldn't produce and keep up. And we're right at the beginning of the season, right? The season sell starts at in that time. So the business starts to uptick a little bit. So we were really struggling. Um, but we roll around to 2013. And that had been a pretty constant theme for us was, was supply. Because we were growing fast. And we were constantly chasing, mm-hmm. chasing not chasing volume, chasing just supply. Chasing supply. Yeah. And that was, you know, it was a, again, it's a first, first class problem to have Mm -hmm. chasing supply because you've got the demand there and you'd always rather have that, but it's still a problem Mm -hmm. and you're still opening the door for other competitors when you have to pull out of events and other competitors are, are stepping into that, into that void. So, um, a good problem to have, but still a problem. And that had been a pretty consistent theme for us. So in 2013, um, really started to think through that model, right? Because we we were having some supply challenges. The top line, we had had juiced it, and it was really moving well. The company, you know, we had a strong marketing foundation. We had field marketer people out in the marketing organization. Um, And then we had, uh, you know, we were doing a lot on the innovation side. Mm -hmm. Um, So... The, the business was was coming together, but we were having our challenges, particularly from that supply side. On how are we going to continue to deliver what we needed to deliver? We're going into the supply
1: yeah. chain more. Yeah. At this point, had Cliff moved on beyond just the core Cliff
2: Bar? Were there other lines at that point? And yeah, when did oh, yeah. all? And when did these product lines occur? Sure, sure, yeah. So back in um, 2000. Okay, so we had you know Cliff Bar is. Was um, was a key part of the, the yeah. company, and that mm-hmm. that's that's a, it still remains to this day a key part of the company. Um, but we had, uh, you know, Luna Bar had launched way back in 1998. Yep, you know that, that was a that was a big move for the company back then, the first nutrition bar for women. Yep, so that was a big step, and then in. 2003 2004. When I was getting there, we had launched um, Z Bar, which yeah, is the kids, kids. line, mm-hmm. as well as Builders Bar, mm-hmm. which is another another product, the higher protein, the right. higher, higher protein, protein version. Exactly right. Thank you. Um, the higher protein version, and then in 2000 and um, God, I don't know 2015 2016, we launched the the filled line. Yeah. Which is, I think you guys are. Like the stuffed. Yeah, the one, stuff. right, 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 right. Which we're right. Were there any
1: products that didn't work along the way?
2: Yeah, there were, um, in 2009, it was a really interesting time, and that's actually a, a key, key juncture for us, is um, we had launched this, this drink called Cliff Quench, okay? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys remember it. I remember
1: a drink. Tell
2: us more about yeah. what, what were the attributes of this drink. Yeah, so, so we're looking at the cat, we're looking at, the category, we're looking at Gatorade, right? Uh-huh. And we're saying, well, wow, there's got to be a cleaner version, and one that has you know, lower sugar. Because yep. one of the challenges I personally have with Gatorade, because I do a lot of uh, you know, Ironman, half Ironman races, was you have too much of that, and your stomach's a mess. Yep. And once your stomach turns, your race turns. Mm-hmm. So we're going down this path. In, in, uh, so we thought, hey, we've got this really great idea. So we get in a room, we start to develop this product, this back in 2009, and we launch this Cliff Quench drink, and it hits the market, we get really good support, because our business is rolling on the bar side, mm-hmm. so we're becoming a bigger brand, but we get out there, we get displays up everywhere, Rick, uh, one of my, my head of sales calls okay. me and says, hey Kev, we're not selling any product, <laughs> I said, well what do you mean? He goes... No, I mean, we haven't sold a unit on this one display at <laughs> Yeah. So within nine months, we pulled it back from yeah. the market. And the, and the lesson for me in that process was we had way too many cooks in the kitchen. And that's one of the challenges with innovation is you've got to have you've got to have clear line of sight on who's making what decisions and really keeping that team as tight as possible. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you don't go out and ask questions right. and ask for feedback, but you can't be driven by three or four or five different people. You
1: can't be by a, a, a huge committee. That's
2: exactly right. Yeah. And that was a challenge we were running into on that product because all of a sudden I'm out in the stores looking at it. Right. And I'm like, what did we create? Like, yeah. wow, we lost our way along the path because there were like four of us making decisions as we went along that path. and And then you end up with Something that looks more like vanilla than
0: than than anything else that you were you were trying to develop. In in retrospect, was it if you had to if you had to sort of point at something, was it a product issue, was it a positioning issue, was it a go-to-market issue? It wasn't a go-to-market issue. I think for the most part is
2: by the time it launched, it was um, it was unclear on what it was. Got it. From a positioning standpoint. Yeah, I like, we'd lost our way a little bit on got it. from my perspective on what it actually was. Mm-hmm. And I when I think about, um, well, yeah, I mean, so, so that was, but the key lesson there is, and we learned this as we launched the field line, yep. the, the cliff field line mm-hmm. was, I had set up a separate team that was about, um, there were, I think there were eight people on the team, and I had one lead on that team, and he reported directly to me. Yep. And that way, we were able to keep it really clear and concise about what is this thing, right. Right. and we were also able to make quick decisions and move the thing along. And who's responsible. And who's it. responsible each step of the way, yeah.
1: Well, tell us more about, I mean, back to supply. I mean, yeah. a key turning point that I, as I under, my understanding as an outsider looking in was the building of this plant in Idaho. Tell yeah. us a little bit more about what went well, what were some of the lessons learned, yes. and, w- and when you decided to do that.
2: Yeah, so, you know, as, as we go back to 2013, you know, I'm, I'm becoming CEO. I'm looking at the business. Clearly, we've got a supply challenge. Um, and 2013, we start to stabilize it. We have a new co-packer. Uh, we've got a new co-packer coming in on the slab line, which yep. is the uh, the cold form, which is things like Luna and Builders, and then we've got a baked facility, which are Cliff and the Z bar So we've got these things happening, and and what the um, the key thing is, I'm looking out. Is our business was really growing at this time? You know, 2012, 13, 14. I mean, we we're really seeing some significant growth. And as I'm looking out into the future, I'm thinking. Well, we've got to, we've got to find um, capacity because now we're growing, you know, if we're growing 20% in a year, we're almost adding a line. Yep. Mm-hmm. And any co-packer who has a pretty well-defined, you know, area, y- y- they just can't expand that yeah. quickly, right? Because they, they, they've got defined wall. There's right. four walls right. here and I can't move it. So we had to become more flexible in that supply chain and be able to react more cl- quickly. So um and the other thing we wanted to protect was IP. Yeah. Right? The, part of the challenge you could say, well, just go to someone else. Well, all of a sudden you're sharing your recipe now with yet another party. With yet another party. Mm-hmm. And and even though you've got ironclad agreements, yeah. you know, you, you, there's still risk there, right? Right. So so I um, started to really look at it and you know, one of my models was um hey, you know, we could we can do this model in uh in Indianapolis like we had done with this other baker who built Onto their facility, mm-hmm. and they were going to add it, but that was a, the switch we made in 2012. But they were having a lot of challenges and trouble, and yep. all of a sudden, I looked at it, and I thought, "This just isn't. This just isn't going to work. Like this isn't working." So, um, so we ended up making a change there, and we brought in an outside facility. So we actually bought the facility from them. So yep. this is my memory is not serving me, but this is probably 2014, yep. 2015, where well, we purchased that facility and then brought a brought another supplier to uh, another vendor to come in and run it for us. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So they ran it for us. But then we were looking at, well, that's one side, but we also needed something out West. So we started looking out West and that's where the twin falls, Idaho facility yep. emerged. Got it. And for us, like for me, part of it was, look, we're going to own, we're going to pay for a bakery. Cause when all of a sudden no co-packer is going to build a bakery for you, a hundred plus million dollar bakery right. and say, Hey, here's a five year deal. So <laughs> yep. the, so we were going to pay for it, right? So then the second question is, um, d- did we want to own it? So the answer is, yeah, let's own it. Why wouldn't we want to own it? We could still have another operator it come in. It's a
1: long-standing in. business. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Got a lot of confidence in that business. That's right. Yeah. So then the third decision was, do we want to run it? Yeah. So as we got to that third decision, that was probably the big one because we knew we wanted to own it and all that. So we got to that third decision and just said, Um, yeah, let's do it because it was a way for us to extend vertically that whole business model that we talked about originally, which Mm -hmm. was, you know, sustaining our business brands, people, community and planet, which this is a way for us to move back in the supply chain and really see if we could develop a different kind of bakery run that one that ran on those same principles that our office did. And, um, and it turned out to be a huge success. And so, but it's a funny story because we probably had about 500 employees, you know, sales, marketing, finance, all Mm -hmm. all those Before we brought on these bakeries. Mm -hmm. And the way the timing worked was we were bringing up this other bakery. This is 2016. We're bringing up this bakery in Twin Falls, Idaho. In January, February, we're starting to build it up. And then we also get word that the bakery in Indianapolis is the the, the, the operator who's running that no longer wants to operate it. (laughs) So we went from 500 roughly people to... Eleven hundred in literally like two or three months mm-hmm. because we brought on you, not like, only you twin like quick falls, transition actually you, know. you actually like quick transitions well that's the way, the, the way it rolls moves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know in it um, but it was it was it had a huge it has paid huge dividends. And not so much from a cost structure standpoint, because at any time, you, as you guys know you, know, you set up a fixed cost like that. Yeah, it's great when you're filling it up, but if you're not <laughs> yeah. filling it up. And we also made this commitment to the employees that we weren't going to have a significant temp workforce, right? right? Uh-huh. Because that's how you manage quality. So as you get to those downside of the years, you're going to be carrying that labor. Yep. Um, but that's okay, because in the high times, you've got people who know how to operate. Right. And we were having, turn, uh, you know, turnover rates were super low in our facilities because people liked the ESOP and also liked the benefits that Cliff brought to, brought to them.
0: And how were you able to actually get that culture ingrained when you basically almost doubled the size of the workforce in two months? Yeah, you know, it was um, it, one, one, of the, one of the things I,
2: I said going in was we're not going to dictate what this is you know we had our aspirations which I talked about Uh we also had our ingredients which are those things that we value in interpersonal relationships which is something I did back in 2009 to define what are those things so between those two we said here's here's you know what we do the aspirations right and this is how we do it the Mm -hmm. ingredients and said you guys go figure it out and we had these really talented teams these two talented really talented leaders and their teams at both facilities and they took it and ran with it Hmm. And it was remarkable, and they had two different challenges. One was a workforce that had already existed, right? So you're trying to change that culture. The other one was hiring, right? The people for the culture, right? Mm-hmm. And speed, and speed, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you had to get you had get to get it all deep. all is happening in real
1: time. Exactly. So as you look back in building Twin, Twin Falls, buying the Indianapolis plant, what would be your advice to the listeners on building? Facilities. What are what are a couple quick lessons learned?
2: Yeah, um, the, the first lesson learned on on building is give yourself time. You know, we've heard the horror stories, right? We've heard the horror stories yes. when you try to go from groundbreak yeah. to operating in nine months. What can happen? We gave ourselves a long runway. Prior to that, is making sure your business is really ready for it, because that was one of the things that I had, I had watched closely from two thousand four all the way on was when is that when's the business ready for it because when it, you want to make sure you're at some level of stability that when you're going to go make that kind of commitment capital wise that you're ready for it stability
0: it from a financial perspective well, top line yeah oh
2: thank you yeah i think stability from two perspectives one is that your 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 top line mm-hmm. is is there and it's solid yeah it. yep i got to the point with cliff Barr with where i could predict with it with pretty good accuracy of how that thing was going to do year over year over year mm-hmm um and that's what you want and now now part of the business with z bar z bar has got a little more volatility but that's okay because i still got the anchor in that facility being really predictable and then the other is of course financially that you're that you're able to deal with it because there are going to be delays Mm -hmm. and that'd be my third thing is just be flexible on your timing in your startup because even though you give yourself time there are still going to be delays and it's not going to happen exactly as you planned
0: Mm -hmm.
2: so
1: Tremendous growth during your tenure at Cliff. You know, certainly Thanks. a different Cliff when you started and a Cliff um, today. What were some of the challenges that came, came about after, you know, the volume, the, dart, the volume, obviously it grew to a volume that could sustain all these facilities. What happens when you're a really big company? What, <laughs> what different challenges have, have come yeah.
2: from being, a, you know, one of the largest consumer brands in the U.S.? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because part of it's very personal. So a leadership challenge. You know your job when you're running a when you're running a, a company that has eighty people versus a company that has twelve hundred looks really different. And that stuff, you know, I'm an operator, right, yep. through and through. I mean, I love to run businesses, but that had to change. You know, when we were when I just joined, I was I was negotiating contracts. I mean, yeah. every a lot of contracts I'm in negotiating, and all of a sudden we've got twelve hundred people, two bakeries, we're international, like. All of a sudden my job's different. If I'm still negotiating contracts, there's a lot of other stuff on strategy and right. relationships and culture that isn't mm-hmm. that isn't getting done. So um so that was a that was a that was a big component around around leadership. Um the other thing that that changed for me was um this uh the 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 fact of like the way you used to get stuff done is different. Right then you get it done now. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be that my presence, you know, I I could just walk into teams and, you know, we'd be working on project plans and we'd be doing all that stuff together. But all of a sudden, and even when I wasn't involved, the teams knew who to contact to get what done. All of a sudden, you know, that's when you got 150 people. All of a sudden you got 550 people or 600 people doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, it's like, well, what's the process? Right. Like, how do, I don't even know this person up here that anymore. Right. So it was really thinking through those connection points and getting really clear on on the process. What One was just what is the key process that makes us great? Mm-hmm. What is the thing we need to be yeah. world class at? And then making sure you've resourced around it and you've got process wrapped around it so people are really clear in understanding. And the third thing uh, is culture, was... You know, you got to make sure you're building in the right cultural uh, markers, if you will, into an organization because it's, there was a time, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, where me and my leadership team were having this massive impact on culture because people were seeing us like all the time and you Mm -hmm. could just walk in and you walk into a meet. Everybody knew Kevin, everybody knew, you know, everybody knew everybody. And, and that worked really, really well. But as you get, as you get bigger, well, you know, the, 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 the direct connection point. Yeah, doesn't, it's, not it's, it, yeah. it's not as scalable. It's not as scalable. So how do you make sure you're putting in the key pieces into the organization? And that's why I brought up, you know, we call them our ingredients, but those behaviors that we valued in interpersonal relationships. Because one of the things we got into was, you know, all of a sudden you're hiring people because that becomes critical, right? Because mm-hmm. I used to be sitting on every new hire yeah. from the time I started. Now, at the end, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sitting in them. I couldn't. I, otherwise, I wouldn't have been doing anything else. So it was making sure that um, we're staying, you know, we used to get this thing as I was going was, um, you know, what's the fit like, Yeah. Right? Well, the person doesn't fit Cliff. Well, I know what I mean by yeah, that. What, that mean? what do you mean do by you that? 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 How That's do you translate that? Right. How do you translate? So those, those ingredients or the behaviors really helped us start right. to, defi- well, no, I don't think they're going to connect well, right? I don't think they're going to create or, yeah. you know, that type of thing, which really helped us define it. And then once it started living, You know, we built it into our review process. But once it started living, it just lived. And it just grew much stronger than I ever could have imagined.
0: Curious. So, you know, you you talked a little bit about how your day-to-day job just changed over time. Because it had to. And you were incredibly successful doing that. But how did you personally know how to evolve and change? How did you get better every day? Like, were you, do you have mentors? Like, walk us through that.
2: Yeah, you know, it, um... Well, I mean I, I think I got better and better. You'll have to ask my team, <laughs> my team whether that was true or not. I think the results spoke for themselves. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. You know, it was um it was a constant you know, I'm 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 very curious mm-hmm. and I also listen.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That was one of the things I and I was known for at Cliff Bar is listening. And you know, I was constantly through whether it was we are interviewing people or people we'd hired, was constantly learning from them about the key things they're seeing in, in at the business at the company, particularly when people first enter into an organization, you know, for the first six months before they get co-opted into the, into, right. the, into the, culture, they, they are really, um, they're extremely insightful about, Hey, here's something that's working or not working. And, and for any founder or CEO or, or owner out there, those six months are critical yeah. to make sure you're tapping people. But it's, as important as tapping them is making sure you've created a a warm, safe environment because you got to make sure your expectation of them is to tell you what you're not doing right. Mm -hmm. So that was a really key component for me. Um, The second one was, yeah, I mean, just... Watching and reading a lot of material, like I, I was constantly, you know, just in deep on that. You know, one of the disadvantages or advantages at Cliff I had was I didn't have a formal board. I had mm-hmm. the, the two owners were, were the board primarily, um, and you know there was upside to that because we were able to move, move really really fast. Mm-hmm. And there was downside to it because I just didn't I didn't have the. Um, the expertise are, are around me, you know, that, that you can get from a board because mm-hmm. boards can be obviously, as you guys know, extremely valuable as you're dealing with different challenges. Um, and then the other thing I'd say on, uh, on that was, um, you know, is getting coaching from the outside. So I had a formal coach as well as, um, just a lot of informal industry people mm-hmm. that I would check in with and, and connect into to say, Hey, how are you challenging this? How are you doing this? How are you doing that? And, um, I found through that process I was able to able to keep pace. Well, and and recently you left Cliff,
1: so tell us a little bit more about why you decided to move on.
2: Yeah, you know, so um, I uh, left about four months ago. It was um, a really hard decision because I love that company. Like, and I mean, I you bleed Cliff. I bleed Cliff, and I put everything I had into that place for fourteen years. I mean, fourteen plus years. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where Gary and, and Kit, you know, they the, as we talked earlier, they're the owners they had, they, you know, they were getting antsy to get back in and do mm-hmm. some yeah. more things in the business, which, which I totally respected. And I understood, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden you got this business and, and it's, it's an awesome company. It's a great environment. There's a ton of energy there and, and they wanted to get more involved and they had come to me and said, Hey, you know, we, we want to, um, we want to run this thing with you. Like the three of us be a, a team and, and just go tackle this thing. And. And, CEO um, committee, a CEO, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, um, you know, is is is, um, you know, I gave it a lot of thought, but at the end of the day, I was like, you know, this is a good time for me in my career um, to move on and go do different things, and I think give them the space too to to reinvent, That's right. you mm-hmm. know, if they need to that company versus. Why wow, am I going to say something that, you know, something I don't like that, that Kevin did and hurt his feelings. Like this just gave us both a, a clean break for them to go do what they want to do mm-hmm. with the company and the business, which I think will be great, and then give me a chance to to um, think about what I want to do next. Well,
1: to your point earlier, it, it no longer had the clear swim lanes if, if, if you right. went down that path. That's for sure. And, yeah. and you mentioned that's, that's the key to a successful organization is everybody having a clear swim lane, and it would no longer be clear.
0: Yep. That's Especially right. a founder CEO relationship too. That's right.
2: Yeah. So what's next for you? Well, that's um that's kind of what I've been thinking about. I'll tell you what I'm doing right now, which is I'm coaching, as I saw you Wayne, the other day, <laughs> I'm coaching my uh my kids' baseball teams, my kids' basketball teams, and and having a ton of fun doing that. Like we're really staying connected and, and making it happen there. It's been it's been great. And, um, and then, uh, you know, just talking to a whole lot of people. I mean, you know, it's funny when you're sitting in a business and you're operating, this is one of my, one of my other lessons to, to, to founders and CEOs is like, pop your head up. You know, I, I was so busy running that company and just jamming on it that I step back now and have been able to just really connect with a lot of people in the industry. And it's just fascinating what's happening out there and all the different roles and all the different things people are doing in this space. Is really really cool, and so it's it's been fun reconnecting or connecting with new people, yep. and um, and learning about what's out there. So so no clear um, idea yet. I mean, I've I've launched a uh, um, Big Rock Growth Advisors, which yep. is an advisory company that I'm that I'm starting. Um, that's really about helping companies you know, really be able to sustain and drive growth. And that's across, you know, sometimes when you're growing wildly, that sounds like it's awesome and unbelievable, but there's a lot of challenges. That's right. And having done this at Cliff, I understand how that works. Um, so uh, beyond that, though, um, looking at some board stuff and then, you know, potentially operating again.
0: Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, Kevin Cleary.
1: Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can find us at unfinishedbiz.com and on our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page. You know I love LinkedIn. Subscribe to our show for free on any podcast app of your choice. And if you love the show, we'd love an iTunes review. Five stars. And now let's get back to our episode with former Cliff Bar
0: CEO Kevin Cleary. During your tenure at Cliff, was there a Bet the Company moment that you went through?
2: You know, I, I think the, the classic bet the, bet the company moment at Cliff, I'll give you two answers to that. I, I think the classic is when Gary decided not to sell the company back in 2000, uh-huh. and that's before I, before I joined. But when I think about a gutsy move, you know, to walk away from $120 million, half of which would have been his mm-hmm. and half his partners, but then having to buy out his partner or the other half gutsy move. I mean, it was, it (laughs) was, and I, and I think as I look back on it, I mean, I think that's one of the, the awesome moves that, that happened in the, in the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, and in kudos and you can see the results and you know, you you get the right people and you get the right mission and vision and, and a lot can happen. So, so I think that, but I think more as it relates to me and it's not as dramatic as that, but I think it's a good lesson for, um, for, uh, for founders and CEOs, is that you know back about 10 years ago we had a decision to make right we we launched this quench thing it didn't work very well and there's this constant pull amongst you know in, in companies to just go broad you know hey we're in bars man we're great in bars. we got bars we got cliff we got builders we got luna yep at the kid bar let's um okay we're good there let's start going over here into this adjacent category or or another drink or or into cereal, or That's whatever right. the case may be. There's that constant draw that pulls you in that direction. And about ten years ago, you know, my challenge to the organization was, hey, let, let's let's put that on hold a little bit, and let's go after trying to double the number of households that buy our products, mm-hmm. our current products. Let's just yep. try to go after that. And you know, said so let's try to do it in five or five years. The company was kind of looking at me like this guy is crazy. There's no way we can <laughs> do that. But with that. What that decision they that 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 singular decision really drove, was um, a lot of focus mm-hmm. from the organization at large. Whether it was whether it was people in marketing or people in sales or people in supply chain, or find, everybody got what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And in three and a half years later, we doubled. And then we kept that focus. Yep. And so, so every strategy has a price tag, right? Mm-hmm everyone does because during that window we weren't launching a whole yeah, bunch of trade-off for sure but the, the payoff was huge mm-hmm. from the from the focus so that's one of the things that you know as I, as I visit with companies now as I talk about and that's where a little bit of the big rock thing came from is like what is the rock in your organization and how mm-hmm. are you how are you nurturing that yep. thing you know and how are you focusing and for us it was both cliff bar and bars
0: mm-hmm.
1: I mean a lot of success at cliff is there a particular high point that that really resonates with you that you're going to look back on your cliff journey of that was, that was the best.
2: Um, yeah, you know, it was, it's really interesting is in 2009, we went through a, um, a recall. It was the, uh, it's, it's actually the worst of oh. times, the best of times. Okay. So you remember the peanut corporation of America yeah. and oh. we'd gone through a recall and we ended up taking 40% of our business off the shelf for oh, like God. three oh, my months. Gosh. I mean, it was a massively expensive yeah. recall and, and unclear. And I remember sitting down with my team the first time because I was president or I had just becoming I guess I was just becoming president, but I was running this running this uh this 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 thing and I'm like I look around the room I'm like, has anybody done this? <laughs> and my team's just looking blankly back at yeah. me and like, no, I'm like, well, let's go out and really kill this thing then. Let's execute it like nobody's ever executed. Mm-hmm. So we had a group of us that just worked night and day for a good couple months. And whenever I see these recalls, I just recoil for the team that's, that's at these companies because you got to move fast because you got to protect people and you, but at the same time, it's really hard internally to to manage it. But it was both the worst of times and the best of the times because the worst of times, because we were dealing with just a heavy issue and pulling all that volume off the the table. And of course the, the, the the ultimate uh, concern for consumers, which we felt great about our product, but it was like, Hey, we've got to do this and and make this happen. Um, out of an abundance of caution. But, and then you, then you, on the other side though, was just to watch the team mm-hmm. come together and how we pulled together. And it's a funny story because we had 25,000 people reach us either through email or, or phone or whatever. We got back to all 25,000. Wow. All 25,000. We got back to, Yeah, in the same manner that they reached out That's to right. us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we got back to them in the same way. So we
1: and caught. that's no small feat in itself, let alone you oh, know, yeah. 40% of your volume coming off the shelf.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was it was crazy. So then, then uh, the same thing happened with... So we made a call into Kellogg's at that time and said, well, because they had a product that was yeah. caught up in this. So I was like, hey, let's see how they're handling this, right? Mm-hmm. Thinking, hey, we can learn from the big guys. Uh, well, when I left, it was... Ten years and counting or nine years in counting, we still hadn't heard back. <laughs> but it spoke to a little bit of right. just the passion that was in the company that's really built around the culture that we were that we were building. That's right. And and people were really committed to getting it done. So it was the worst of time because it was a really hard thing. I remember getting up in front of the company one time and just sitting there, we're about four weeks into it, and it felt like this was never gonna end. Right. And I sat up in front of the company and my first my first words out of my mouth was this effing sucks like you guys are working your tails off i get it man i'm busting my tail and and we just can't see the light it's still cloudy but it's like keep going man it is going to clear up and then pretty soon it's clear the next year we grow over 40 percent
0: did you always have conviction that that the dust would settle and that you guys would come out on top or was this more that's what they needed to hear and that's what you said no,
2: no, no. I, I had conviction that mm-hmm. we were gonna get through it. Although it was, you know, that's what was helping me get through it, was just saying, hey, at some point we're gonna be looking back at this and saying, Wow, mm-hmm. what a what a deal that look, was. Look what we overcame, look what we overcame uh-huh. and look how we grew from it. Mm-hmm. Because we did grow from it in almost every way, shape, and form. And so we came through it and um, but I knew it would happen, but I needed to give them both vulnerability that I was with them that like, I get it, man. Yeah. I get that this is not fun. Yeah. Like, this is not fun. This is, in some ways, this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> like, right. It's supposed to be at events and doing right. stuff. But right. Anyway, so, um, so that, that was both yeah. the, the worst and best. And there were a ton, there were a ton of best of times.
1: Rum, this story truly goes full circle. And, The way it started was a situation that we've seen many, many times, where you have founders and Gary and Kit that took the company to a a, a very successful level, but in order for it to continue to progress, wanted to bring in professional help. And that's where Kevin Cleary came in and did a phenomenal job.
0: I mean, he grew sales 10 times. He was able to build one of the most sophisticated manufacturing facilities in the industry. I think everyone, everyone actually agrees, you know, he did great.
1: I mean, it turned into a really iconic private company Mm -hmm. and perpetually private at that. And one of the unique turns in this whole story is that the founders wanted to come back and run the business.
0: And that was the point where Kevin decided that it was going to be very hard to have three co-CEOs. But he was excited to tackle one of Unfinished Biz's most unique obstacles by himself.
2: So one of the things I did, and this was about four years ago, was uh, I was given an interview much like this, and somebody had asked me what my favorite television show was. And I said, it's, it's my family and I love to watch American Ninja Warrior. Respect. That's Res- awesome.
0: Yeah. So as it
2: came <laughs> out of my mouth, I thought, they're going to call. Right? And about a week <laughs> later, my assistant walks in. She goes, I know the answer to this, but she goes, are you interested in, in being on the show? Uh, You know the answer to that. (laughs) Uh, So, so we put together a video and I ended up uh, getting onto the show, um, American Ninja Warrior. And it was, it it was a, it it was a super highlight from Cliff. We had about 70 people from Cliff Bar come down. It was down in Venice Beach. Oh my They were in the crowd. My my parents were there. My wife and my three boys were there. My brother. I mean, it was just an awesome experience. So I get out there on the first obstacle and my whole goal on this thing was to get through the first obstacle. <laughs> because my family and I just roll around on the ground yeah. when we watch people fall off the first obstacle. That's right. Now the first obstacle's gotten a little harder since I did it. But when I was like you can't fall on the first obstacle. Right. So I, I make it through the first one, I get to the second one, it's a silk slider, I come down this thing, I pop off, I'm supposed to grab a rope. I can't grab the rope, I go into the water. <laughs> well, of course I'm in the water, I'm a competitor. I'm 49 years old at the time. Most yeah. of these guys are like 22, right? But I'm in the water and like, uh, uh, and I'm just like ticked, right? Yeah, like, God. But I'm like, then I remind myself, hey, this could be on national television. So I pop up, you know, hey, this Looking is awesome. it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a trip. Like, yeah, exactly. So, so I come back, and then we ended up getting on the show. We were a teaser going into a commercial, and then they did a little uh, vignette on uh, my training on the cliff Bar and on That's my family. Awesome. And it was, a, it was a huge highlight. Is it
1: as hard as it looks, you know, in terms of from a, you know, how people train
2: for the event? It's funny because, you know, but going into it. Were I thought, you a climber before? No, I, I mean, I was a triathlete. Yeah. I mean, I, I, aerobically, I probably could have hung with all those guys. What's but it's the grip strength? Yeah. It's all the grip strength at the end of the day. So, but I'm going into it, you know, and I'm always, you know, when you're watching the show, there's a lot of times, you know, at least me and my ego thinking, I could do
0: that. Yeah. Like, I could mm, do that. Yeah. I could
2: do that. Well, you get down there and everything's much taller
0: than <laughs> you think. So all
2: of a sudden you're coming, it's like, it's intimidating. You're looking, right. I could get hurt on that. You know? <laughs> And
0: I'm not that good So uh, oh, Anyway um, that was It, was, it, was, it was a wonderful If they speech. called you again Would yeah, you would take you do it? Yeah, it was, oh yeah of course That's
1: awesome Okay so if People from American Ninja World He's ready to get He's ready again <laughs> I know Redemption The comeback
2: The comeback
1: yeah, a... Alright Kevin Clear You ready for our Signature rapid fire game? Bring it on Let's do it
0: Instagram story Or Snapchat story? Instagram Spotify or Pandora? Pandora You lefty or righty?
2: Righty Wine or beer? Wine
0: Starbucks or Dunkin Donuts? neither
1: Patriots or literally any other team
0: any other team (laughs) coffee or tea
2: tea Uber or Lyft Uber
0: East Coast West Coast
2: West Coast Coke or Pepsi Coke
0: Nike, Adidas
2: neither Hmm. Hoka
0: alright you know Hoka yeah I do
2: hit snooze or wake up hit snooze
0: hummus guacamole
2: guac
1: check your bag or carry on carry on
0: chocolate or vanilla
1: chocolate watching friends or watching the office oh office Star Wars or Star Trek Star Wars pen or pencil
0: pen treadmill or run outside oh run outside book or Kindle book staying out or staying in on a Saturday night staying in winter or summer summer sweet or savory
2: sweet truth or dare truth Facebook or Twitter Facebook. Museum or park? Park. Burger King or McDonald's? Neither. <laughs> Gum or mints? Gum.
0: Sunday or milkshake?
1: Oh, milkshake. Mashed potatoes or baked potatoes? Baked.
0: Red eye flight or full day flight?
1: Red eye. Oh, All right. I think that's a record. I know, that's definitely a record. <laughs> he likes that.
2: So last, last question, yeah. Kevin. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Yeah, you know, I think we talked a lot about. I think we talked a lot about some things. I would say um, being really crystal clear about what your proposition is about, mm-hmm. and staying true to that as you go, and making sure you don't start to expand your business too quickly before it's ready. Making sure you have that, you have um, that stable ground before you start to branch out into other areas. Well, thanks for joining us on
0: Unfinished Business, Kevin. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks much.
1: You've been listening to Unfinished Biz.
0: I'm Wayne. And I'm Robin. We'll be back on the next episode with Matthias Metternich, co founder and CEO of Art of Sport, who blended an understanding of international business trends, a love for startups, tech know how, and a few big names MVP James Harden and Kobe (laughs) to co found Art of Sport, a sports body care line. But the road to Art of Sport included a lot of lessons, both on the hardware and software side. And as Art of Sport's CEO, Matthias knows there's still a lot to learn.
1: Go Rockets! As we were thinking about the athletes we wanted to bring on board, we said, you know, they have to be in a mindset where this isn't just an endorsement deal like all the other stuff they're doing.
0: That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin_biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com. These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG partners.
1: And now a word from our lawyers. This is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.